Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. It's risky business to go on a partnership with your family or your mate. But when it works, it works really well. David Berger is the co-founder of a business called Jimmy Brinks. I've always wondered where and how the name Jimmy Brinks came about. I drive past his vans all the time. Like, who the hell's Jimmy? For me, there's so much mystery around it, which is so good for a brand, especially a liquor delivery business. David and his business partner, Nathan Besser, are, from what I can tell, diametrically opposed. But this is a classic cut and sew partnership, one that works so well. The pair first became small business partners through a B2B company called Suppertime, effectively supplying delivery drivers to restaurants to deliver to their customers. This eventually evolved into what we now know as Jimmy Brings, delivering alcohol within 30 minutes. But this may appear as a liquor business, but really it's the fulfillment and logistics business. It's called The Last Mile. It's all about fulfillment. So I want to peel back the mystery of who the hell Jimmy Brings is how it evolved and came to be, the beauty of letting an idea evolve on its own and how to make the most out of marketing opportunities. So let's get into it. David Berger, welcome to The Mentor. G'day, Mark. Nice to be here. So David Berger, uh, you know, the, we're talking about Jimmy Brings, but I, because I live in the eastern suburbs, um, for many years I used to drive down, sometimes used to drive down Old South Head Road coming from home uh, coming to work, uh, yeah, coming from the office to home, and uh, I would see this van down there with this picture of this dude on the side called Jimmy Brings, and I have a son called James who I call Jimmy. He only gets called James when he's in trouble, and uh, and I used to think, what a bloody good idea, Jimmy Brings, and I worked. Out, it took me a while to work out what it was, but uh, I am so glad to talk to you and find or get to talk to at least one of the brains and uh, founders of Jimmy Brings because it has always been intriguing to me. Um, I know what you guys do, but like it's always been intriguing to me the whole story and how it all started, which is what we're going to start with right now. We're going to unpick it. So, uh, David Berger, you look like you might be around 35 years of age. Thank you. That's very kind. I'm 41. Maybe a couple of years on top of that. <laughs> but take me back a little bit like because, you know, it's a, it's a cool business, but what did David Berger do before he started Jimmy Brings? Um. I grew up uh, yeah, in the eastern suburbs. I was born in, in Paddington and grew up around Centennial Park. Went to school in Bondi Junction. Um, yeah, had a great kind of high school uh, and, and, and finished high school. Decided I was going to go and study architecture, which is something I always wanted to do. I went traveling for a year, came back, enrolled in a university course. And uh, after a year of architecture, I dropped out. It wasn't for me. Tell me why. 
I think fundamentally, I think architecture is the sort of thing where you have to really um, prepare and work to a certain rhythm so that you can you can um, produce your assignment at the end of the, the month or whatever. You can't do anything at the last minute. And I was always someone who liked to do things at the last minute. And so it, it turned out that architecture was not going to work. Uh, so then I enrolled in a, a few different a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Arts and spent another few years sort of mumbling my way through university before realizing that university in general wasn't for me. And I um, actually with the, uh, I wouldn't say the permission, almost the urging of my dad, he said, look, this doesn't seem like it's working out for you, Dave. Uh, why don't you, why don't you quit uni and why don't we try and do a business together? Uh, and my dad had experience in, in software development. He was a, an entrepreneur himself. Um, so I said, all right, great. Love that idea. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I've always been interested in, in sort of design and, and, and the likes. Uh, I'd love to open a furniture store. So we, uh, I, I went and started working in, in a furniture business for six months or something to kind of learn the ropes. And then we, we actually bought a furniture store together. Where Bass was that? That was in Chatswood Chase. It was a store right. called Cocoon. I, I, before you go on, David, like, I, can I just – let's just sit down and picnic around this for just a little bit for a second. Could sure. you just something quite interesting? Um, do you think you would have been a good architect or are you saying to me that um, the, doing the architectural course and or following up with other university courses, commerce, arts, etc., university wasn't right for you as opposed to – you know, being a, an architectural designer? That's uh, a good question. I, I Maybe. I, I might have been okay at it. I mean, I, I, I still quite like the kind of creative process and I'm very into the kind of, you know, the look and feel of any business that we that we work on. So I'm into the aesthetics um, and I don't know. I mean, the, the, other, the other point was that it's, I think in first-year architecture, at some point the, the head of the school sat us all down and he said, there's a hundred kids in this room. Uh, in five years' time, only 30 of you will graduate, and of 30 of you graduating, 27 will be designing, you know, public housing and public toilets, and you know, not doing anything <laughs> interesting. And you know, a couple of you will make it. And I thought, you know what? I think, yeah, I've, I've had enough of this. <laughs> so, so, so then, then, what's interesting is you said also that your dad was an entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, I like to sort of uh, fossick around this stuff. Um, he was uh, into IT and software. Um, was your dad – Did your, do you think your father recognised in his son David um, the fact that going to university and going through that sort of discipline process and, you know, it is, it is a discipline for discipline's sake in some respects. Um, uh, do you think that he recognised that you, you had entrepreneurial skill, like – or did he just think, shit, I better get this kid out of this, it's costing him money? I think probably he, he could see that I wasn't, I guess, realising my potential at, at uni. Um, and I think he was trying to, yeah, to help me, you know, find a path. Um, and, and it was very generous of him. Um, and, and actually we had, a, we had a really, it was really, we had a nice time. Like it wasn't a, you know, I, I hear a lot of uh, stories of people going into business with family that, that that's a disaster and and interpersonally it wasn't a disaster but the business was a disaster so so it, it would turn to shit pretty fast i guess furniture's a hard business my god it's so very personalized. hard um and uh if you get get the wrong stock you're in all sorts of trouble yeah um, 
I mean, did you, you know, I mean, stake you into the into the business? I mean, you had no money, so he, he must did. have staked you into the joint. He did. Yeah. He did. And then did he participate in the decision making, or did you leave that up to you? Um, I think. Look, we ran it together. We were kind of partners, and uh, you know, he didn't have he didn't know anything about design, or he had no no feel for that. Uh, so he did. He let me make quite a lot of decisions, but ultimately. I was a, I was young. I was twenty two or twenty three years old, so I was fairly young. No chance. No chance. Um, yeah. And and really, you know, what happened was we worked very hard, you know, for about two years. We got to the we got the business to, I guess, break even. And you know, I was paying myself a wage of fifty thousand dollars or whatever it was, and it was bloody hard work. And uh, after you know trying so hard, um, I decided there was probably more to life than this. Uh, and I think that the clincher for me was was sort of standing there. Um, you know, retail is really difficult, and and what what was what drove me crazy about it was that you seem to always be at the whim of the weather, or it was too hot, it was too cold, there was something on, and you'd be standing there in in your store waiting for a customer to walk through the door, and if they didn't walk through the door, there wasn't really much you could do. And I always felt that to be very frustrating. And, and so in the end, we, we, we closed down the business. We, we had a big closing down sale. Uh, you know, we paid all the staff, we paid all our suppliers, we closed the doors. Because of that experience of standing there behind the counter waiting for a customer to walk in, I decided whatever I do next, I want it to be in, in online. So online and e-commerce was very, very early days. But I figured this was this was something that was going to be, yeah, more interesting, more scalable, and yeah, I don't want to stand there waiting for a customer to walk in the door. So you you just said something quite interesting to me. A lot of people ask me this question. You just, you've done it twice at the age of twenty two, twenty three, twenty four around that territory. Um, the first one was making the decision to let's call it abandon something, the university course, and that was from what you said, sort of largely. Um, assisted by your dad's intervention. Um, but the second thing is you and your dad decided to pull up stumps in relation to the furniture business. A lot of people say to me, well, at what point do you sort of like give up and, and stop, you know, stop pursuing what you think is A, your dream, B, something you've invested lots of time, effort, emotion, money into. Uh, maybe you could just take the audience through that. That is it a is it a build-up or a moment or – or did you just something flash by or, or just take me through the thinking about, mate, it's time to get out, dad, let's do it. Or did your dad say it? Or how, how do you go about that process? This was almost 20 years ago. So it's not, it's yep. not that easy to remember. I think I, it certainly was a mutual decision. I think fundamentally the problem was we had gone into that business without knowing enough about it. So, you know, I think if you're an experienced operator in a particular industry, you would know certain metrics around, I don't know, how, what sort of price per square meter should you be paying for rent and all this sort of stuff. And yeah. we just didn't know. So I think I think what dawned on us was that we didn't actually have a, a sustainable business model. We didn't know, we, we didn't have a sustainable business model and we couldn't see it improving dramatically. So it just, it, it, it was, I think it was, it was just a very rational decision. You know, the, the emotions of the whole worn off. It was, you know, it was a very exciting thing to do. But once the excitement had kind of ended, it was like, you know, it, it, it was, it would be irrational to continue. So 
in the end, it wasn't such a hard decision. It was just, this is not working, cut our losses, let's move on. And I, I, you know, and I think it was a good thing. I mean, ultimately, my dad said, well, there you go. I've given you a, a, a tr- you know, I've, I've tried to help you out. That didn't work. Uh, you're on your own. Go forth and, and figure it out. So that, that's interesting. So, um, I mean, I often talk about, for me, a, a time that indicates you it's time to pull the pin and get out is when the energy drops out of the business. I mean, you can start off these things really excited and happy and sort of, you know, looking forward to the next day and, and, and happy when you go to work and, you know, your, your brain's working overtime on things you can do and how you can improve it. And you might want to do something, you know, in the corner and put that bit of furniture over here. But when the energy get, when you lose your energy for something, um, I mean, hindsight usually tells you you have the wrong business model, but once the business has lost, you have lost energy and the business has lost energy, I reckon that's a good indicator. That's a really big sign, a big signal that you better start thinking about moving on. Um, and do you, are you saying that the energy sort of sort of drifted out of the business? Absolutely. Yeah, it was just drudgery. You know, we were just turning up every day and it was starting to become, uh, yeah, it was bad, bad for our spirit. So I think, yeah, I think it was it was crushing, but it also, it, did, it no longer made sense. And when you got out of the business, David, can I ask you this? Was there a sense of relief? Did you go, wow, that, my backpack's empty. I feel nice and light now. Yeah, absolutely. I remember being, yeah, a little bit excited for kind of what lay ahead and, and, and also a bit daunted. But, um, you know, at that point, I'd, I guess, dropped out of uni and didn't have a degree. And I saw my other friends who did have degrees now going off and becoming, you know, professionals in, in different fields. So it was, it was daunting, but it is always exciting. A new beginning is always exciting. That, that, that's, uh, I was talking to someone on Saturday about exactly this whole situation, someone who'd been sitting, sitting in a business for like maybe the last 10 years or so, and, um, but the business is just not going to work. So they finally you know, had ups and downs and off and ons, made the decision, and they also were looking at um, their, their, their uh, colleagues and friends, all look, you know, married, kids, you know, earning good money, house, mortgage, all that sort of stuff. Um, that that uh, balance between daunting or feeling as though maybe you're a bit behind the eight ball, but at the same time being able to feel the excitement of what may lay ahead of you. Um, what's the sort of state of mind do you think you need to employ to adopt the exciting part over and above the daunting part? Because the daunting part could actually get you depressed. You could feel a bit like a shithead, like if I'm an absolute failure, fucked up. Yeah, and I think – I probably think, look, that's the benefit of being younger. So I think, yeah. you know, I think it would be a, a much more difficult proposition to, to have to face that kind of reality, you know, later in life. But so I think having the benefit of a bit of, of youth on your side was is helpful. But I also think ultimately, you know, I think it comes from having a belief in yourself. So if you believe that you can go and do something, then it is exciting to have a new beginning. That's the mindset that one would need is to, you know, is to really have a strong sense of self-belief. That's a very – I'm glad you said that because – and that's an important thing. I mean, it's easy for you and I, City, to say have self-belief, but you got to find it somewhere. Um, and all we can say to everyone who might be listening to this, who might be finding it a bit daunting at the moment, especially with lockdowns and all the other things that could be the last nail in the coffin for a lot of these people, um, you know, and their business might be completely – uh, you know, gone now, or, or at least in a position where they don't they, they don't think they can carry on any further. But this sense of self belief 
I actually think it comes from our upbringing, our parents, our socialization, our colleagues, our friends, etc. Um, it's not an easy thing to do, um, but nonetheless, you've got to try and find it. Okay, Dave, take me from there to what happened next. I mean, it sounds like you've got done a completely gone in a completely different industry from that point. Yeah, and by the way, things did not look good for you know another half decade or so. So. So basically, um, from there, I went and joined uh, a friend of mine introduced me to uh, an online business called Red Balloon, which you probably would have heard of, oh, run, yeah, by Na- run by Naomi Simpson. Yep. Um, and I, you know, I joined there, um, just found any kind of position. I, I was the, the guy, in fact, who was in charge of uh, signing up suppliers to, to create new experiences. I was the supplier guy. I worked there for sort of four or five years and... Um, kind of slowly worked my my way up, um, and it was very interesting. And you know, I had a good experience of, um, I guess, being in a startup. Actually, that's I didn't realize it at the time, but it was really a tech startup kind of environment. It was it was quite exciting, um, and and I basically stayed there for for quite some time. At some point, uh, a friend of mine who was doing an MBA, um, I was talking to him about it, and he. Uh, and it sounded very interesting. And I said, I, I thought to myself, I'd like to do an MBA. I, I kind of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder having never finished uni. And so I found a, an MBA course, which I enrolled in uh, and started doing that. And 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 really, I guess the turning point was uh, a friend of mine married a guy called Nathan, so who became my business partner. Uh, he was working as a delivery driver in a very little business called Supper Time. So he was in his mid-20s or late-20s, and he was a, a writer, so that was what he was going to do in life. He was going to be a poet and a writer. Uh, but to support himself, he became a delivery driver. And at some point, this business was was quite small, and the guy had been running it for, I don't know, 10 years or something. He wanted out, and he kind of asked around. There was about four or five drivers working there, and he said, does anyone want to buy this business? And Nathan said, yeah, I'll buy it. How much? And he said $20,000 or something. And I just sort of got to know Nathan a little bit through, again, through his wife. And he had no experience buying or selling a business. So he asked me, you know, can you give me some advice? Um, Having known, I'm the only other person he knew that had ever bought a business, uh, even though it was a disaster. And and I remember talking to him and, and kind of, the way that that business worked was it was a, a really it was a b2b proposition so supper time would provide drivers for restaurants who wanted to offer delivery so the customer wasn't the end user the customer was the restaurant the restaurant would call up and say i've got an order going from here to bellevue hill uh, send a driver all right we'll be there in 20 minutes so he was explaining to me this business and it, I love the sound of it. I, I thought to myself, God, compared to standing in a furniture store, this business, I can, I can see how you grow this. If you want to grow the business, you go out and you sign up 10 more restaurants and you'll, you'll grow the business. So I was kind of talking to him about it and, and getting excited for him about it. Uh, and then I, I ended up meeting a girl and, and moving down to Melbourne. And Nathan said to me, why don't you, um, why don't you start supper time in Melbourne? Um, he always has very kind of grand visions. So I went down to Melbourne and we had no partnership agreement or anything like that. He, he printed me a whole bunch of 
of brochures that he used. And he said, here, use those, uh, go sign up a few restaurants. And so I arrived in Melbourne and, and I thought, how am I going to go do this? Uh, I went, walked down Chapel Street and there was a pizza shop that was, uh, had a sign up saying driver wanted. So I walked in there and I said, I'd like to become a driver. And the guy, he said, what else are you doing? I said, I'm down here. I, I was working a couple of days for Red Balloon, but also doing my MBA. And he said, you're, you're not the, the normal kind of, I guess, delivery driver profile, but if you want a job, by all means, go ahead. So I started, yeah, I, I worked as a delivery driver um, and kind of learnt the ropes. On the tools. On the tools, exactly, doing a lot of deliveries. And the, I ended up signing up that restaurant as, as the first supper time, I guess, customer down in Melbourne. But I, I'm shit out at business development, so I didn't get beyond that. And, and Nathan came down and he, he tried to help me grow the business, but in the end, all I did was just deliver pizzas six nights a week uh, and do you know thousands of deliveries. Uh, and in the end, um, my relationship down there broke up, and I ended up moving back to Sydney. And and by now I was 29. Um, and yeah, moved back to Sydney, you know, didn't really have a job, um, didn't, you know, hadn't, yeah, w wasn't doing much in life. Um, and Nathan said, why don't you, uh, why don't you join me at supper time? Um, and so I went there and, you know, started working for him for, I don't know, 25 bucks an hour or something um, to, yeah, to help him out in the office. And that's how we kind of got together. So Suppertime basically was a, a delivery business for vendors who you guys signed up, which is like your supplier. Yep. They're your supplier and you delivered to their customer. So you like a, you're, you're, you're a, and I, I presume people buying stuff by telephone, ordering stuff by telephone or, or online or perhaps exactly. along those lines. How many years back when, 10 years or 12 years ago? This is about 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah, right. So online really hadn't kicked off hard at that Correct. stage. But you bought into Supper Time or you become a partner of Supper Time? Yeah, so what happened was, um, so we started working together and, and, and Nathan, as I mentioned, he's a, he is a business development like um, whiz. So he's just got a lot of get up and go. And, and he had, and, and from, he had taken that business and it was very small and he'd actually grown it considerably in the, the year or two that he'd owned it. Um, and what I found when I joined him was that although the business was really kind of humming, uh, everything else was a shambles. So no systems and processes and everything was just a mess. Um, and it really interested me and it just, it just felt natural to want to clean up the mess. And I don't know how all that, where it all came from, but I just had, I guess, a different skill set to him. And so I really, yeah, I enjoyed kind of systematizing the operation um, and kind of improving the, yeah, improving the processes. And we slowly started to shift from, I guess, from a B2B business to a, a direct-to-consumer online business. And it's actually kind of a funny way as to how it happened. So, so you became the B2C. Indeed, but it was it was a bit slower than that. So we used to deliver on behalf of restaurants, and we would take a, a let's say a thirty percent commission uh, from the restaurants. So the bigger the order, the bigger the the fee we would generate. And occasionally yeah. we would get these big orders, you know, two hundred dollars worth of pizza, and it's great. You make sixty bucks on that order. That's you know everyone's happy. So um, well, Nathan one night was doing an order to the city. 
he said to the guy, you know, who opened the door, he said, what's going on? Why are you guys ordering, you know, $250 worth of pizza? And the guy said, oh, you know, we're, we're at the uh, Macquarie Bank, like foreign exchange desk. And we actually, we order in every night. And he said, oh, really? What, what other food would you like? And the guy said, well, actually, um, we'd really love to be able to order Una's Darlinghurst. It's a good schnitzel restaurant in Darlinghurst, if you know it. So Nathan said, all right, well, I reckon I can organize that for you. So he popped down to Una's and he went and spoke to the boss there and he said, uh, I've got a customer they want to order for 20 people. Um, if I can get you that order, will you give me a 30% discount? And the guy said, okay. And off we went. He then got that order. What he did was he would then stand uh, outside Shifley Square or Governor Phillip Tower or any of the big uh, towers in the city. He would stand there at six o'clock at night and wait for someone to walk walk up carrying bags full of food and he would go and stop them and and give them the spiel and tell them how you know we got other other restaurants we can deliver and within a very short within a year or two uh, we had built up a enormous corporate business so we had all the investment banks and all the law firms uh, everyone all the consulting firms everyone was ordering from us and it, we weren't even online. We would just send, uh, we would email people, you know, 20, uh, 20 menus and they would email us an order. Uh, and then, you know, then we created an Excel spreadsheet of all the menus, which all the bankers loved. So they were, we were sending Excels back and forth. Uh, and eventually we decided, uh, we should probably create a website. Um, because yeah, let's, let, let's take this online. So that's kind of how it, how it built up. So it was originally it was direct to consumer, but it was, it was corporate only. So, uh, so what's really interesting here is that, um, and I often talk about people who cut and sew or businesses who have one who cuts, one who sews. Um, and really seems to me that, uh, maybe, uh, Nathan was the, the hustler, like, he got the hustle on. He, he'd stand there and he'd hustle into investment banks and law firms and accounting firms and stuff like that. But at the same time, so I would call him the cutter. And then, but really at the back, you've got to have someone who sews it up. You've got to make sure that there's this, this shit works so it can be executed upon. And that relies on systems and processes. Um, and that's, that's you. So he cuts, you sew. He hustles, you sort. You like to look at the systems. You like to see it structured. There's no question. I, I could not have uh, had any of the success that I've had without Nathan. And he says the same thing. If I was on my own, it, it wouldn't have happened the way that it happened. And, and what point did you realize booze went well with the uh, food? Yeah, we, we were running supper time. We'd been running that for a few years. Um, it was growing. Uh, we'd started growing a direct-to-consumer brand. And we were always, you know, the type that, I don't know, if anyone called us and said, can you deliver this? We always said yes. You know, whether it was food or catering or whatever, we always tried to find a way. At some point, there was, so we were always thinking, what else can we do with our delivery infrastructure? So by then, we were still running in a little office in Bellevue Hill down on O'Sullivan Road. Uh, we probably had around 20 drivers on the road, uh, all on two-way radios and that kind of thing. And we yeah we're like well what can we do with this with this infrastructure and this know-how and we came up with two ideas one was a sushi platter delivery business called sushi time and the other one was 
uh, can we deliver alcohol? We, were, we got excited about both ideas. We actually launched both of those businesses. This is classic David and Nathan dynamics where I think I came up with the idea of alcohol delivery and, and convinced Nathan that's a good idea. Now, if that was just me on my own, I would have just sat on that idea and never done anything. It would have just been, oh, that was a great idea. Nathan, literally the following morning, I come into the office, and what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just applying for a liquor license. I was like, really? <laughs> He's like, yeah, we're doing this. I was like, okay, uh, and and off we went. I think it was around 2012, so it's you know it's still quite a long time ago. But yeah, we decided everything eventually was going to move online. And at the time when we were starting Jimmy Brings, we really thought that it was it was more to save someone's house party or something like that. We thought it was going to be young people on Fridays and Saturday nights at 10 p.m needing a few cases of beer. That, that's kind of how we imagine the business would, would uh, unfold. That's what I actually thought it was originally when I first saw it. I do want to just emphasise one thing before I do go to the break, though, for those people listening. For me, as an observation in relation to um, what you've done here, David and Nathan, but this is a, a perfect example of leveraging infrastructure. So, you know, and it doesn't really matter what the ideas are, but you always got to try and leverage the infrastructure. You've got drivers, you've got websites, you've got customers – you did something, you, you leveraged what you had. In other words, you had capacity, you're spending money at capacity. With a little bit extra spend, you could actually get a great deal of extra leverage out of the thing that you're already spending money on. So it's, 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 a, it's a classic leverage play and it's very, very smart. There are a lot of businesses out there that have got to recognize what infrastructure they have right now and how can I make it work harder for me, harder than I work. <laughs> You've got to make your infrastructure work harder than you work if you can. And this is a classic example of it. Let's go to the break. We'll come back from the break. And I want to talk about um, – we got to where we are now with Jimmy Brings. But I want to talk about Jimmy Brings. I want to know what happened to Supper Time too. And, um, but I want to know a lot about your marketing, how you market Jimmy Brings, the, the style of marketing that you've been using. So let's go to the break. We'll come straight back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss we're back from the break and I'm, I'm talking here now to david berger dave is one of the founders of jimmy brings and another business called supper time we've sort of taken us or david's taken us through his journey up until up until setting up jimmy brings and it sort of sounds like it started off as a 
a leverage idea off the back of another business that he owned or the infrastructure that he and his partner owned called Supper Time, and, uh, which is interesting to me because I always thought David and or others uh, were sitting there one night and cooked up this whole idea of delivering alcohol to people's homes um, back in 2012 when it was because I used to drive past the actual premises where he used to have his uh, vans out the front. I'm really interested in that. Um, I just – I need to understand – like it's an obsession of mine, and I, I've been thinking about it for years. Where did the name Jimmy Brings and come from, and, and how did you come up with that idea? Okay, so as I mentioned, we, we started. We had a business called Supper Time. Uh, we 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 want to launch uh, a sushi platter delivery and an alcohol delivery service. So uh, we called the sushi platter delivery Sushi Time, and we were gonna call the alcohol delivery Liquor Time. And in fact, that was absolutely the plan. And I think when we went to register the name, I can't remember the, the, the business name or the URL or something was taken a lick of time, so we couldn't do it. And I remember we were standing at the Department of Fair Trade or somewhere where you had to actually register these things. You had to do it in person. And they said, no, you can't have that. So we came up with the name um, Moonshine. Um, we got that, but then when we tried to submit our liquor license application, they knocked they knocked us back because they had it had an illegal connotation. So then by that time we were a bit exhausted. We really wanted to start this business and we were kind of tossing up names and, and Nathan said, Why don't we do a character? And he had the you know, he started going through words and he came up with the word brings and I then went home that weekend and I was kind of just going through names in my head and, and Jimmy Brings popped into my head. And I remember I texted Nathan and I said, look, I think, I think we should call it Jimmy Brings. And he texted back and he said, I just spoke to my sister. She thinks it's a shithouse name, um, you know, whatever. And, and by Monday morning, he said, all right, fine, whatever. Let's just call it Jimmy Brings. Because just we're go with so, it. We'll just go with it. We're so exhausted. We just wanted to start the business. We didn't want to muck around with the names. And I think it's a brilliant name. And I, totally. I think totally great name. Way better than Liquor Time. And, you know, it's one of those ones where, you know, it's serendipitous. I mean, it certainly wasn't by design. We lucked upon it because there was a bunch of other obstacles in the way. And, and yeah, in the end, it was, uh, it was for the best. Shit, I, was gonna, I thought you were going to tell me some sort of really um, genius thought process and you spent months and months and months doing anal analytics on it. Not at all. I mean, and then, and the way that the brand developed was also serendipitous. So we called it the, the, the designer in you know, that week and we said, all right, we've got a name. Uh, we need a, we need a website and a brand identity. The designer looked at us. He said, all right, well, what's the brief? And we said, oh, I don't know. We don't, you know, you're the designer. And Nathan, my partner, he straight away said, oh, I picture Jimmy Brings as a guy on a, on a rickshaw somewhere in Asia, like cycling into the sunset. And I'm like, I don't, I, that doesn't sound right. I, I hated that idea, but I didn't have a strong idea myself but what popped into my head in that instant was jimmy brings like a 1920s gangster that was kind of just immediately what popped into my head so i said i think that's yeah that's my idea so the designer went off and he tried to work on on both of those ideas uh, and he came back and he said look the uh the rickshaw guy i couldn't really make that work but the 1920s gangster i think we can we can do this and the first iteration of the brand was actually uh, the mugshot of Al Capone, his front-on and his side-on mugshot. 
that was the kind of image of Jimmy Brings um, for the first few months. And then at some point, the designer said, I want to make uh, business cards um, for you guys because it was back in a time where you needed to have business cards. And I said, you sure? And he said, I want to come and take photo, black and white photos of you guys like, uh, like, like gangster mugshots, okay? So he came and took these photos, and then he kept on working on the design of the website. And then um, he came in to show us the latest version, and instead of having the Al Capone mugshots, he had Nathan and my mugshots as the design. It was a joke. And we said, don't be ridiculous. And he said, no, I think this is actually really interesting. And it took us a little while, but eventually we were kind of convinced that maybe putting our faces on the branding made sense. Um, but we couldn't decide which face. So when we launched, Jimmy Brings had both my face and Nathan's face. Uh, and it was, again, it was terrific marketing because it was so uh, enigmatic. People didn't understand why is it called Jimmy? There's two guys. Who are these guys? Which one's Jimmy? Uh, and it created a lot of kind of intrigue. It sounds, it seems like it was well designed, but it was all, yeah, it was all a bit of luck. Well, you're actually quite a good storyteller, and what's interesting is um, normally I'm interrupting all the time, um, and I haven't been because I'm interested in your story. Um, and whilst you say you you lucked it, you've said that a few times. Um, I think maybe what you've done is you've displayed quite a bit of patience and sort of let things take their course and evolve. Maybe you would say you lucked it, but equally you could have insisted that it be uh, Al Capone or whatever. But you've actually let these things evolve on every occasion, and you let it sort of roll out and open up and that's quite a skill not just let it open up but participate in the opening up of it like sort of bouncing around that's one of the great things when you've got a good partner like your partner nathan and it's particularly when you're sort of diametrically opposed in your probably in your personalities or your skill sets at least and my gut feeling is your skill sets are around your personalities as opposed to being university-based skill sets they're sort of more personality skill sets i would say to the audience um never underestimate the power of letting something evolve and don't panic and rush into something um, that you don't need to rush into because um, two excited, energetic, sort of fairly, when what I consider to be fairly well qualified or symbiotic people like you two um, can actually create great things. My wizard business, the name Wizard, sort of evolved a similar sort of way. Um, and you know, I had 10 names. I just actually went through the dictionary and picked out 10 different names. And in the end, I just decided on a wizard because I just thought, oh, well, it's not a name that now anybody else is using and uh, and it doesn't. It sounds totally different to what anyone else has ever used. You know, I, I actually had the Southern Cross in there as well and, uh, you know, I could have used that as equally as much as I was going to pick wizard. But I actually have this thing about I love magicians and I love people who are wizard in terms of sporting abilities and I just thought, oh, I'll, I'll stick to it. And I like the sound of the name. It's a strong A-R-D, wizard is a strong word easy to remember um so that that was sort of the criteria i picked wizard and it worked it was just but i evolved it you've evolved it and uh funnily enough what's interesting about your your business name um jimmy brings is and if i could just pull it apart a little bit it's a it is a person jimmy is somebody it can be anybody my view of jimmy could be it could be a gangster it could be but i'll have a view of jimmy that maybe 50 others don't have the same view of and there might be 50 different views of what our Jimmy looks like, which is good because you don't want him to be one person. You want him to be whatever me, the consumer wants. And Brings says it all. 
it's not like you're guaranteeing something and there's a dude who's guaranteeing it. Jimmy Brings. It's such a good phrase. It's so good. Yeah. It's, it's so good. It's been a great device. And we, I mean, there's been quite a lot of, I guess, competitors in our space. And in the end, all the names that they've come up with are kind of, they're, they're all liquor time names. They're all kind of yeah. forgettable names that you don't know one from the other. And, and it's been a great advantage. I mean, not that, not that every business can be personified with a character, but um, it's been, that's a wonderful um, marketing device. It's such an easy way to talk to an audience because you're talking personally as opposed to, you know, as a, as a brand or as a business. So, yeah, I think we rolled with it. And I agree with you. I think you, you, you have to let these things evolve. And again, you've got to back yourself. Almost every time someone comes and tells me I've got a great business idea, I listen. I saw that that sounds interesting, and I my first response is I don't know. Like maybe it's very hard to know straight off the bat is this going to work. But what I always say is you pro it probably won't work. But if you got enough um, flexibility and creativity and enthusiasm, then you will make it work. You know, if you if you keep on persevering then you can figure it out. Um, so when someone says, yeah, I want to go and start a business, make money, whatever. So what are you interested in this? I don't know. I always just say, well, just do anything. Do, just do anything that you're interested in because if you get deep enough into any industry and you understand it, you'll start to uncover, you know, the opportunities and, and it will evolve and you do need to be flexible. But yeah, in time, you'll, you'll make it work. Do you think the industry you're involved in, though, is alcohol or food, or do you think the industry you're involved in is fulfillment? Logistics, yeah. Logistics, yeah. 100%. Fulfillment, yeah. So, so and that, that's an important thing. Like, a lot of people don't recognize what their business is in. People might think it's in the alcohol business um, or, and or the food business, but really you're the infrastructure and logistics business, what I call fulfillment. And, and of course, you know, there is some luck in this part in that fulfillment – has become, or the last, what they call the last mile, has become a huge part of the new growth business called online, which clearly got a massive kickstart during COVID, like big time. But, you know, you who would have thought to the humble delivery person, you know, you were one once down in Melbourne, running around delivering thousands of pizzas to everybody. You probably thought to yourself, what a shit fight this is. Like, look here, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it was in a car or motorbike, whatever you're doing, you probably thought, who would ever think that, logistics which is you were part of will become a big business but it has become big big business through the online environment becoming a big thing I mean, absolutely. Do, no, that's, absolutely that's an important point so when we started supper time and jimmy bring uh, it's certainly our our ambition was to create a big business but we really thought that it was just going to be a nice big business in the eastern suburbs of sydney and maybe in the lower north shore and that was fine you know that was that was certainly the ambition what actually ended up happening was i started to read in the basically in the media that there were a number of business models similar to supper time that were suddenly gaining huge valuations and raising lots of money overseas and this was a whole world that we didn't even we didn't know anything about and so we're kind of following this going, gee, this is crazy. You know, there's a company in America now, there's one in UK, they've just raised $20 million. Um, it was more like the what we would now know as the Deliveroo and Uber Eats oh, okay. style model, right? That, that model started just going nuts. And so what ended up happening was there was a bunch of people approaching us at, at supper time saying, we want to we fund you. And, and we were like, 
small business people who had no idea about raising capital or anything to do with that. So yeah, we were having these conversations and they were kind of going nowhere. And eventually we got a, an, another approach from um, this company in Germany called Rocket Internet. So Rocket Internet, um, they run e-commerce businesses all over the world. And in Australia, they run the iconic and HelloFresh. So they're kind of, um, yeah, they're very amazing uh, executors of e-commerce concepts. Anyway, they were coming to Australia and they said, we're, we're going to launch a business that's going to compete with Supertan. Either we can acquire you or we can kill you. Ah. And it was not very nice. And, and indeed, within a very short, within a week or something, we'd, we'd agreed to terms to sell the business to them. This was at the absolute 11th hour. So, and, and so this, this business that launched, um, eventually was called Fedora. So Fedora bought out supper time and we ran Fedora for just under a year whilst it was sort of scaling up here in, in the Australian market. Uh, and it was at the, you know, this was at the, the moment that Deliveroo and Uber Eats and all the other big players were coming to town. And, and in a, in a lot of ways, we were extremely lucky, uh, that we got an exit like right at the 11th hour uh, and, and sold that business. We had no idea where the world was going. And so it was very interesting because at the time that we sold that business on purpose, we said, well, we'll, we'll sell, sell you the food delivery business, but we're not going to sell you the alcohol delivery business. We're going to keep that to the side. And it went and ran itself for a year, you know, didn't grow, little business. Um, and we decided once we sort of uh, finished the earn out from selling supper time that we were going to give, essentially give Jimmy Brings a go. And, and in that time, the world had changed. You know, when we started that business, we had to educate customers on the idea of 30 minute alcohol delivery. It just didn't, it didn't exist. No one, no one even knew uh, how it was relevant to them. You explain it to them, they go, oh, well, that's interesting, but I never run out. I've, I've never, you know, if I run out, I just go to the shop or I've always got a couple of bottles of wine in my, in my cellar or whatever. But you might be already half tanked. Well, yeah, that's right. It's a good reason to, to order in. So it was very hard because no one could understand how, even if they'd heard of us, they didn't even know really when they would use us or why. So in that quite short period of time, what we saw was that the whole home delivery industry changed. So suddenly, you know, people were ordering Uber and Deliveroo and, and, and just habituating themselves to, to ordering things in that they never used to. And so we left Fedora and we rejoined Jimmy Brings and we, it was a very small business. And in order for us to even make a, a wage, we had to kind of fire everyone. And, and Nathan and I literally got back on what we call dispatch. So behind the computers and, and running the drivers and, and running the operation. And we always took phone sales. And, and one night I got a phone call from a customer. It was probably like a Wednesday at know, six o'clock at night. And she was wanted to order Jimmy Brings. I said, okay. She ordered a couple of bottles of white wine. And I said, look, I've got to ask you, why are you ordering Jimmy Brings? And she said, well, I'm a mom. I've got two kids. Uh, I'm home alone. I really want a drink. Uh, I can't get to the shops. You guys deliver me two bottles of wine for 35 bucks in under 30 minutes. And the wine is good. She said, I don't go to the bottle shop anymore. This is how I buy wine. And I went, oh, really? And suddenly this whole idea that we had that all we were was a 
uh, a late night service to save your party just flew out the window. And I thought, oh shit, this is a big idea. Actually, this is just another category that customers would like to have delivered quickly without too much choice and without too much hassle. Uh, and it's a huge industry. So I think there's something in this. That's a very interesting thing you just, can I just stop there for a second? Because for those people listening, the importance of a proprietor or the founder or the owners of the business to get on the telephone and talk to their customers and find out what they want is critical. Like if, if, cause if you've got a staff member doing that, then probably not even going to ask that question because they're just, they're just doing nine to five, filling in the hours and they go home and whatever, they're, they're happy. Um, and it doesn't mean anything bad about stuff, but they're just not, they're not on, on board. I mean, I, I often talk about when you employ people, try and employ people who think like a proprietor, um, because no one thinks like a proprietor, like it, that's like critical. And you and you being the proprietor is a perfect example here. Um, just one or two telephone calls, just talking to customers and then you asking the question actually sort of allowed your business to somewhat pivot itself, like to become what it became ultimately. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, there was a, we had a very difficult experience being acquired by Fedora. That was a really tough um yeah, very challenging year of my life. I've never worked so hard in my life. Uh, and we learned a bunch of stuff from those guys that we were able to then take. So we scaled that business something like 15X or something in, in a year. We really grew the shit out of the business and we learned a lot on the way. And and, and so we kind of thought, oh, what are, the, what are we going to take from that experience and apply to Jimmy Brings to, to grow that business? And I think if I look back, there was probably only two or three things that were important. And number one, to kind of back to your point, was we put in a um, an NPS, a net promoter score survey on every order so that we were getting constant feedback from our customers as to what we were doing well and what we weren't doing well. And that was just changed everything because we suddenly we could make adjustments quickly and look after the customer. Number two was being more data driven. So the, the you know the German company that took us over, they were so uh, insanely data driven to some extent, maybe a bit of overkill. But there were certain things that we learned to do. You know, basically tracking customer behavior, seeing if a hundred customers joined us this month, how many came back to order the following month and the following month and the following month, and how often did they order and how big were their orders and what can we do to change those customer behavior metrics and track them. The third one, which I thought was kind of the most interesting, and I think this is the most classic problem that you, you have in small business, was that when we grew supper time, it didn't even require that much capital to, to get it going. And, and I think a lot of small business people are not investing in marketing or promotion. They're not maxing it out, right? So we, we're, we're in a situation with at supper time where you know, what was our budget for the performance marketing? I don't know, it was thousand bucks a week or something. It turned out that we could have been spending $10,000 a week on marketing and getting a return from it. It's just because we were undercapitalized, we couldn't make that decision. And I think that was the first thing that we did when we got back to, to Jimmy Brings was go, okay, how are we going to max out all of our marketing channels? Um, because uh, yeah, it takes balls and you need to have some cash behind you, but it wasn't like that much money. It was, you know, it, it was, it was something that, that probably was 
most small business people might be even be able to access that level of capital if they knew that you could spend it efficiently. We're going to run a short time because it's such a good story. I guess I, I don't want anyone to have the misapprehension that it was all perfect, peaches and cream, with some of the obstacles that you sort of ran into. I mean, for example, licensing. Yeah, lots. I mean, first of all, the, the lockout laws came and that, that, that cut our business by 30% overnight. So that was in, I think, 2015. That was very hard. The Yeah, I mean, everything in relation to, you know, it's a highly regulated uh, industry. Um, and so we need to be we need to be more responsible than I think than a bricks and mortars retail bricks and mortar retailer um, because we're under so much scrutiny. I mean, in terms of your marketing, um, I mean, obviously, digital marketing is probably a really big part of it, and social platforms, etc. But you know, did you does your marketing plan incorporate? sort of any of the, the normal sort of stuff? Yeah, well, I think, okay, I mean, this is like classic as well of like start a business. So start a business, open up your shop, your website, whatever, you know, and you're all excited and then nothing happens. You know, yeah. you don't get a sale, you don't get a customer, nothing happens. And and that was very much uh, the story of, of Jimmy Brink. So um, we launched and we were kind of waiting and, and we would get one order here or two orders there and it was probably – for the first few months, it was five or 10 orders per week. It was really nothing happening. And at some point, we, we had actually, we started speaking to um, one of our suppliers who was a, a tobacco supplier. So, um, and, and we had come up with the idea that we wanted to produce um, a Jimmy Brings fridge magnet. So I'm not sure if people would have seen them, but we've got very large fridge magnets that we, that we handed out uh, many years ago. You know, again, we're a very small business, and I think we wanted to spend thirty thousand dollars getting these printed in China and handing them out. And we convinced our, um, our our tobacco partner to help fund the cost of this magnet. And they said, "Yeah, no worries. In order for us to to help you out, we need to change the design a little bit, and it needs to say instead of alcohol delivery service, it needs to say alcohol and tobacco delivery service." We thought, all right, if you give us $15,000, we'll, we'll make that change. And so we went and printed out all of these magnets uh, in China, and they, they arrived, and 30,000, I think, we had sitting on the floor of our office. And, and we decided we're going we're gonna to hand them out to, uh, to mailboxes across Sydney, and we don't really know how to approach it, so we'll start from the furthest east and work our way west until we run out. So the first box we handed out was in, in Vaucluse, uh, 24 hours later, I got a phone call from a, a nice woman and she said, look, I'm so-and-so. I'm the, um, the legal counsel for the Commissioner of Health at the Department of Health in New South Wales. And I'm just calling to let you know that you put a, a fridge magnet in the Commissioner's uh, mailbox. It is promoting um, tobacco and you, you do realise that you're not allowed to advertise that you sell tobacco. And I went, oh, shit. Um, and I said to her, look, I'm really sorry. Um, yeah, I just want to let you know, like we've, we, you know, we've, we've hardly handed any out. They're all sitting on the floor of my office. We won't do it again. You know, I'm so sorry. And I called my business partner and he was, uh, he was in Perth, I think. And he said, well, you just have to quick, just hand them all out, hand them out as quick as possible. And I said, look, I'm sorry, Nathan, but I've already, I already told her the truth, which is they're all sitting on the floor of the office. It would be very weird if I then handed them all out. Uh, I don't think I can do that. 
And so we were waiting and we, we weren't sure what to do. And, and she said she's going to be in touch with a, with a letter. And about a week later, we hadn't received the letter. So I, I traced down her, her details and I called her and I said, look, it's, it's David from Jimmy Brings. I'm just calling about this problem that we had. Um, I said, look, I, I really want to know, you know, what do we need to do to fix these magnets? Can we cross it out? Can we put a sticker on top? Um, because we're a small business. This is the biggest investment we've ever made. And they're just sitting on the floor of the office. I can't just throw them away. Please tell me, like, what do we need to do to keep you guys happy? And she said, you know, David, you're a, you seem like a really nice guy. Um, and, and she said, I've never had anyone call me and, and chase me for a cease and desist letter. She, she said, David, I am going to be writing you a letter. In that letter, it's going to tell you to stop handing out these magnets. Between now and then, whatever you decide to do with those magnets is up to you. <laughs> and I said, I think I know what you're saying. And I said, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Uh, and within 48 hours, we had anyone who I could think of, my dad, my uncle, like anyone who could walk uh, was handing out fridge magnets. Um, and literally, uh, that launched the business. So that was the that was the absolute turning point from a marketing point of view. We went from, you know, as I said, two or three orders a day to 10 or 20 orders a day. And it kind of went from there. So yeah, you never know what's going to work, and it may not be the most uh, fandangled digital marketing, sophisticated social media type thing. So, in our in our experience, fridge magnets worked well. Well, a perfect example of cut and sew. The hustler knew instinctively that you got to get this shit out prior to the letter coming. The sewer, you knew. Hang on, I've got to have something sorted out. You've got to get the structure right. I don't want to fuck it up. So between the two of you, it worked perfectly. Cut and sew, perfect. That's, uh, that is probably one of the best examples of cut and sew that I've actually ever, I've actually ever heard. That's a perfect example of where it works, the symbio- symbiosis of the two people and the two personalities and the two characters work perfectly in a business environment and a great way to launch a business. And look, Mark, I think how many obstacles? I think running a business is, is just being able to solve more problems than than the next guy you know like there are so many problems um that need to be solved you know the logistics model the the yeah all the technology that we've had to build um yeah and and it's been a very yeah very enjoyable but very challenging um journey do you think it's sort of completely occupied your life though i mean do you think it's that's the sort of not let's call it sacrifice but that's the commitment you need to make I think in, certainly in the early days, I think if I look back to, you know, what was the journey like um, kind of growing from, you know, a small business to a, you know, a, a much bigger business. Um, yeah, you needed to be there. You, you know, I, I had to work extremely hard late nights, um, mainly just to, I think fundamentally, to, you know, to, to be at the coalface and actually understand the business that you're in. So understand so, for example, I've recruited thousands of delivery drivers. I don't do it anymore, but I understand the problems that delivery drivers have, and the you know who 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 makes a good driver and why. Um, and I think understanding your business inside out is 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 going to be critical to kind of taking it to the to the next level. 
did Nathan do the same thing or do you think? Absolutely. No, he did. Yeah. And he, absolutely. I mean, we, we have spent thousands of hours delivering, dispatching, you know, and it's, again, I, I haven't done it in years, but it's critical to, to understand what's going to, yeah, what's going to work. Finish off the Jimmy Brings journey. I mean, so did you sell Jimmy Bring, Jimmy Brings? So in the end, we did. So in the end, uh, Jimmy Brings was acquired by Woolies. So we were acquired by, um, yeah, the same kind of part of their business that owns Dan Murphy's and BWS. Um, and that's really helped us as well to, to scale. So now Jimmy Brings is in, in all the major um, cities around Australia, except for Hobart and um, Darwin. And yeah, we've we've kind of changed our model as we've grown, and now we fulfil a lot out of BWS and dance uh, stores around the country. Uh, yeah, it's been a wonderful experience. Not something that I expected when we started it. I was, was going to say, so the the young kid who was twenty two working in the furniture store with his dad, who was at one stage at some point in time decided, oh, man, the energy's gone. I've got to get out of here. Um, was probably working just as hard as the same guy who was, you know, trying to build up Jimmy Brings and also the same guy was trying to do a workout with Fedora. What was the difference between um, those two individuals in terms of hanging in there with Jimmy Brings and hanging in there with Fedora to do the earnout, as opposed to David, I should say, um, did not deciding to hang in there with um, uh, Cocoon, the furniture store. Yeah. I mean, what, what is it? What was, is it an energy thing or is it, a self, is it again, self-belief? What was it? You know what? I, no, I don't. I think it was it was results. I mean, the, the truth is that Supper Time and Jimmy Brings, those businesses have just grown, you know, like every year, you know, for us, I don't know, like it, it felt like every year we were doubling or, you know, it, so it just felt like things were moving in the right direction. Momentum. Momentum. And I actually think um, that that one of the hardest things about a business partnership would be when things are things are going badly because for us things that as soon as we started working together things went well so every year we were doing better than the last uh not to say we didn't have you know difficult periods but really every year we were doing better than the last so it was very easy to uh it was very easy to hold you know to 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 stick to stick with it and and keep going because it felt like we were going we were getting somewhere but, but momentum is an interesting thing um but it's sort of a, a long long-term thing momentum um is sort of something you you sort of look back on oh, well like this year I did double from what i did last year sort of it's a bit more of a historical record uh, do, do like every day i mean i say this all the time but some days are shit days right like it doesn't matter how much momentum you've got some days are shit days probably 250 of the 365 days are shit days what i mean by shit, there's some fucking thing you've got to sort out um you know you're putting out bushfires all the time um how important is it to you and your partner to count your little wins every day? I mean, is that something you do? Count your little wins, say, particularly if you've got a business partner, you sort of say, you know, that was good. That that was that was a good outcome. Yeah, I mean, well, I also I also think yes, but I also think the the other way of looking at it is uh, I try not to get too caught up in you know the latest bushfire or the latest little fuck up because yeah, um, I think it's. I think that's a, that can become very distracting and it's, it's very easy to be, I don't know, to review last week on Monday morning and go, you know, last week we had a problem here and suddenly go, oh my gosh, we have a big problem because um, it may not be. So I, I'm always trying to say, no, let's just, we have a plan. We've got a quarterly plan or a trimesterly plan. 
uh, let's stick to that. Let's keep on trying to realize that plan. Let's change plans if, uh, if that plan is not right. Uh, and let's be quite ruthless about that. So be open to reprioritize, but yeah, try and stick to the plan, uh, and don't get too caught up on the little irritations that happen along the way. That's brilliant. Well, I, I, I time is against us. So, I mean, I usually give everybody an opportunity to ask me a question. I've been doing all the questioning here. Um, do you have any you want to ask me? Um, well, what I wanted to ask you, Mark, is I think you look familiar to me. Did did you used to go into the shop in Bondi and have a coffee in, in the morning? Yeah, the shop. The shop. The place exactly. called the shop. The shop. Because I always used to yeah, sit yeah. there and I was like, oh, I think that's that guy. Yeah, I did actually because um, Mikey, Mike, the uh, guy who owns the joint, um, yeah. my son uh, was his accountant um, many years ago and uh, Mikey's wife. Um, Lucy, yep. Her brother um, is the CEO of LinkedIn. So I right. sort of know a few of them. Yeah. And, oh, okay. Uh, and Mike's Greek and I used to go there because, you know, we'd have the Greek discussion about, about food and stuff like that. So I used to go there a lot, especially on Sundays. But then when COVID hit, because it's so small, those people don't know what we're talking about, but the shop is like literally as big as a, a sh- uh, you know, like a shoebox. Um, I could never get in. So um, I started to go into other joints um, because at least I could sit outside in other places. But um, I miss them now a lot. Uh, it's, it's a pretty cool joint. Yeah, no, that was my local. But yeah, I think we've, we've crossed paths down there. Yeah, 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 it's pretty cool. That's I, I definitely went. I, I used to love going there. I went there for years and years. Um, it's been brilliant talking to you. I, I've, I've often I, when when um, our producer showed me that you're the talent for today's podcast. Um, I got quite excited because uh, um, I've always wondered about Jimmy Brings. I've always wondered, and I finally met uh, the, one of the people behind it. And uh, I really appreciate um, your candor, and I really appreciate. Look, to be honest with you, this is quite educational. Your your articulation of um and your the way you explain things and your storytelling is very, very good, to be honest with you. And um I found this whole thing fascinating. So thanks very much. It's been a great time. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity and uh yeah, nice to meet you and you're listening. Killing it. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistance, Jonathan Leondis. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.